Good morning. Uh, it's my privilege to be here this morning to preach the word to you all. Um, since we're doing Lord's Table, I won't take a whole lot of time for introduction, but I do want to pass along Pastor Dan's greetings. Uh, he called me last night about 14 miles away from their farmhouse in Kansas, uh, where they were going to be staying, where they would have no cell service. Uh, and he told me to greet you all and to preach the word, so that's what I intend to do. Uh, if you would, please bow your heads and pray with me, uh, and we'll get to the sermon. Heavenly Father, we approach your throne, uh, each of us sinners in need of the Savior. Father, we thank you that you save sinners, and we thank you, Lord, for your precious and your great promises to that end, that your word will always accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And so we pray now that you would accomplish that purpose in us in this time, Father, that you would uh, do your work of saving sinners. Uh, Father, of sanctifying for yourself a people for your own possession, uh, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ to the glory of God and the joy of all peoples. Father, we pray that you would use your word to open our eyes, uh, help us to see the truth concerning your holiness, our need for a Savior, your provision of a Savior, uh, and Father, to see our sin, uh, Lord, that we would uh, walk uh, in ongoing repentance and faith. Father, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So we pray that you would use this word to feed us, to nourish us. Father, we pray that you would do all of these things for your great glory and our, for our great joy. We pray in your son's name. Amen. So I want to start by pointing back to Genesis 1. Uh, and thank you, Matt, for reading that whole thing and you all for uh, standing through it. Um, I wanted to, to use that text this morning uh, sort of by way of introduction to remind us of the perfect kingdom that God created for us uh, and the fact that he put man over that kingdom uh, and that it was everything uh, that we could have wanted or needed, uh, that every desire, every need was met uh, and that it was perfect. Um, but it didn't take long. It didn't take long at all. It took until Genesis 3 uh, for the introduction of what Solomon refers to in Ecclesiastes as a futile desire uh, to be introduced, the kind of desire that, uh, that basically says God and his, uh, his creation, his good gifts are not enough, that we need or should want something more than that. And that idea was introduced with uh, the serpent's words uh, there in the garden in Genesis 3, suggesting to Eve uh, that there was something better than what God had given, something better than God himself. Adam and Eve had perfect fellowship uh, with God, and the serpent was suggesting that there was something more to desire. Uh, and I think James is talking about that much, much later when he identifies the progression from that kind of desire uh, that ends up giving birth to sin and leading ultimately to death, which we know is what happened there. Uh, and ever since then, ever since Genesis 3 uh, and Eve succumbing to that and Adam uh, following along with her, uh, this has been an experience that's common to man. Um, we experience this daily. We experience it early on. Uh, something that sort of reinforced this to my mind a number of years ago. Uh, one of my daughters uh, looked at me, and she couldn't have been more than a few years old, very young. She looked at me, and she, she said, Daddy? I said, yes. She said, I want. And she stopped, and I said, what do you want? And uh, she said, Something. 
And I just thought, oh, wow, how, how clearly that pictures uh, the, the, the recognition that we have, even from that young age, that this is not everything that it was supposed to be, that there is something more to desire. And I think there's an innocence in the way she posed it to me. Uh, and I think that innocence is reflected in the fact that, that uh, Solomon in uh, Ecclesiastes 3 uh, points to this, to this notion, you know, God has set eternity in our hearts. Uh, but he also says that he's done it in such a way that we can't figure out the end from the beginning. We can't figure out everything God has planned. Uh, we know that life in this sin-cursed world is not what it was meant to be. We have that intuition. There's, there's suffering, there's lack, there's sin. Uh, but we don't know the solution in ourselves. Of course, early, early on, God does give the solution. He promises to Eve that there will be a seed, her seed, that will crush the head of the serpent. Uh, but unfortunately, throughout history, as that promise has been repeated and known and handed down among God's people, not everyone has believed that promise. Not everyone has put their hope uh, in the promised Messiah. Uh, and this morning, when we come to our text in Matthew chapter 21, uh, we'll see uh, in the course of the narrative that there are two groups identified who have uh, sort of met this reality, as we all do, that life in this sin-cursed world is not perfect, that it comes with trouble, it comes with pain, it comes with adversity. Uh, but they've responded to it in two very different ways. Uh, now, in some ways, their response is pretty similar. Each group, we'll see, has their own design uh, for how they're going to make things what they want it to be. In some sense, each of them has designed their own kingdom uh, and is pursuing that. Uh, but we're also going to see that each has a very different response when God's solution in the person of the Messiah shows up. Uh, now, when we get to chapter 21 of Matthew, Matthew's already gone a good distance towards uh, accomplishing his purpose, which is to demonstrate to his mostly Jewish readership that Jesus is, in fact, this Messiah. Uh, and, of course, from that first promise in the garden, that promise is developed and, and uh, carries along through the revelation that comes uh, to Israel in the Old Testament. Uh, and so G Matthew's purpose of demonstrating to the Jews, this is the purpose of demonstrating to God's people, that all of those promises as given to them uh, distinctively as the Israelites uh, in their scriptures are pointing to this one, pointing to the Messiah. Uh, and if you have familiarity with Jesus' ministry, with the accounts and the Gospels of that, G uh, Israel did not receive uh, their Messiah, by and large. Uh, but Matthew's purpose is writing to persuade uh, his readers that uh, Jesus is, in fact, that one. Uh, chapters 1 and 2, Matthew develops the, uh, the central theme in those chapters, that, that uh, the birth of Jesus is the birth of the King. Uh, he goes out of his way in sort of a repetitive way to point to things that happened in Israel's history uh, as recorded in the Old Testament and pointing to Jesus and circumstances in his life and saying this one does fulfill these things. He is the rightful heir to the Davidic throne. He is your Messiah. Uh, that carries on in sort of the central chapters, chapters 3 to 10, uh, first with uh, John the Baptist's ministry and then through Jesus and his disciples' ministry of healing and preaching and miracle working. Jesus' authority is really on display uh, early on. But then it sort of enters this phase, starting with chapter 11, where he withdraws. There's hardness among the Israelites, 
and even among Jesus' own family members, Matthew points out in chapter 12. And so Jesus starts speaking more obscurely in parables, not doing as many miracles, and shifting his attention away from the lost sheep of Israel and to the revelation of the church that he promises to build. Uh, chapter 19 starts with uh, the official rejection uh, by Israel of their Messiah, and that's the section in which we find our text. Uh, starting with uh, verse 23, we find the scene for our text today. Um, and, and again, this is in the section where official Israel is rejecting Jesus. And here especially, it's kind of starting with verse 23 in chapter 21. Uh, Jesus is demonstrating to the Jewish leaders that God is rejecting them. And uh, just to sort of set the scene, uh, starting with verse 23 there, we read that Jesus has entered the temple in Jerusalem, and this is during the Passion Week. This is the last week uh, of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the week leading up to his crucifixion, his death, and his resurrection. Uh, this scene takes place on Wednesday of that Passion Week. So it's two days after the triumphal entry, which would have taken place on Monday when Jesus came uh, into Jerusalem on a donkey in fulfillment of the Scriptures, and, and there was proclamation uh, among the people and even among the children that this was the son of David. They were, they were singing out and, and yelling out, Hosanna, son of David. Uh, this is the day after Jesus' cleansing of the temple. Uh, he came in and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those uh, selling doves. Uh, and of course, it's the day before the Last Supper, which would take place the night before uh, his arrest uh, and eventual crucifixion. So the Jewish leaders have, have seen all of this in this uh, week leading up to his crucifixion. They've seen and offended, been offended especially by his exercise of authority, uh, that he's come in and he's done these things in the temple, and that these, uh, these Israelites, including children evil, even, are proclaiming his messianic uh, person, his messianic status. Uh, and so we get to verse 23 in chapter 21 there, and the Jewish leaders are kind of ready to demand an accounting from Jesus. They see this sort of bold exercise of authority, and they say, by what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Um, and I didn't mention, you want to open your Bibles there if you haven't already. We'll be in chapter 21 uh, going forward here. Uh, so these Jewish leaders have seen and been offended by this exercise of authority on Jesus' part, and they're kind of saying, what gives you the right uh, Jesus, to, to do these things. Uh, now, Jesus would have sensed their hostility, uh, and so he, he takes a, an approach that's fairly common in rabbinic debate, um, and I think we probably see this in our debates too, kind of a little bit being evasive, but answering their question with a question, uh, which he knows will incriminate them. He says, I will also ask you one thing, this is verse 25, which if you tell me, if you answer my question, he says, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? Uh, and we see there uh, in verse 26, they refuse to answer. Uh, and they refuse to answer because they know uh, that question does implicate them. And it says they feared the people, for the people regarded John as a prophet. And so on the basis of their refusal to answer his question, kind of the terms he had set, Jesus also chooses not to give a straightforward answer to their question. Uh, and then instead, he introduces a parable in verse 28, and it's here in verses 28 to 32 uh, that we come to our actual preaching text for today. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and read 
uh, verses 28 to 32 of Matthew chapter 21. And there's a contrast here at the beginning because basically Jesus is saying, I won't answer for you, at least not yet, but you tell me what you think. And that's what he says. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second son and said the same thing, and he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So in these verses, by shifting over to this parable of the two sons, we see three points that Jesus makes by which he demonstrates how it is the least likely who lead the way into the kingdom of God. And those three points you should see in your outline there. First, kingdom citizens obey the king. That's verses 28 to the first part of verse 31. Secondly, kingdom citizens are the least likely. That's the the second part of verse 31. And then finally, kingdom citizens believe and repent, verse 32. Now, in transitioning over to a parable, uh, this really is, it's a brilliant move for Jesus. Um, Like I mentioned, these guys are hostile, and he would have uh, sensed their hostility. It says in verse 15 uh, that they're indignant, which has the sense of being fighting mad. Uh, Jesus can sense, I'm sure, seeing their faces uh, and the tone of their question, who gives you this authority, um, that they're not going to be pleased with pretty much any response on his part. Uh, So he has a wise move here of kind of moving away from them and their circumstances and confronting them uh, with uh, John's baptism and removes it into this sort of hypothetical (coughs) or theoretical uh, scenario. Um, He says, but what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. Uh, It's a question. This is a question Jesus is posing them, and it's a question about the authority of a father. So although he's moved it into a hypothetical, he's not moving away from that central theme, and it's a theme in Matthew, uh, of the authority Uh, And in this case, it's the authority of a father, but in Jesus' case, it's the authority of the king. Now, of course, Jesus knows that these men, the Jewish leaders that he's speaking with, uh, are authority rejectors, but he also knows this about them. They think of themselves as sort of top-notch moral judges. Uh, They can judge a situation rightly in their own mind. So he knows they'll be eager, uh, if they know the right answer, they'll be eager to give it and prove their own uh, sense of wisdom and morality. They had refused to answer the question that clearly implicated them, but he thinks maybe they will speak to something more theoretical. Now, the scene that he presents, uh, it would have been a familiar scene for these first century men whose experience, and even though they were uh, leaders in Jerusalem, their experience would have been closely tied with agrarian living. It would have been normal for uh, a family to own a small farm or vineyard and for the father uh, to require his sons to go and, and help with the work. Uh, And this is a key point. There would have been no question in their minds or in the minds of anyone that it was required of the son 
uh, to be submissive to his father's authority. And so they would have been initially displeased with the first son's response, which you see there in verse 29. And he answered, I will not. So initially we see this rebellion uh, in the response of the first son. But his actions ultimately, and very quickly in the text, Jesus doesn't really skip a beat here, his actions deviate from that initial response, and it says, he regretted it and went. So the first son says, no, I'm not going to do what you say, but then he regrets it, and he goes and he obeys the father. The second son, uh, his response is initially more promising. The man came to the second son and said the same thing, and the second son answers, I will, sir. Uh, Now, this response from the second son, it's not just yes, but there's a contrast here. Uh, If you have a, a New American Standard Bible, you notice that will is italicized there. That's because the verb is actually not in the original. It's reaching back to the, to the previous verb of, of I will go. Uh, it's really just I, sir, or I, kurios. Uh, what, the, what the brother here is doing is creating a contrast with his brother and saying, unlike him, I will go. And then he adds that honorary title. Kurios is often, most often, translated lord. Uh, so this, this second son is paying lip service uh, to the father's authority to send him and contrasting his brother's initial unwillingness with his verbal response of, I will go. Uh, but then, actually, like the first brother, he does the reverse. He says, I will go, uh, but then he does not go. Now, I want you to think carefully about this response from the second son. It's dangerously easy to soothe the religious conscience by giving lip service to obedience or by comparing ourselves to others. And that's what he's doing here. He's he's soothing his own conscience or thinking he's right with his father by saying uh, he'll do something. And this, the danger of this, the the ease with which we can fall into this, as I was thinking about this and preparing uh, to preach this text, I couldn't help but think back to probably more than one experience I've had in my life, but uh, something in particular. Many of you know I grew up in uh, a conservative uh, Christian environment in western Michigan uh, and um, really had a grounding in conservatism, in Christianity. Wasn't a believer, uh, would have said that I was, uh, but in my 20s I moved to Southern California and spent time um, at an expensive school and living and working around people with a lot of wealth and fame. And it was very, very easy for me to uh, compare myself to them and to think I was doing pretty well. Uh, I might have even said to God things like, I believe in you, I vote Republican. I've been on short-term mission trips. I'm not like these other people around me who support sinful lifestyles and don't even pay lip service to Jesus in the Bible. I don't know if that resonates with you, but I've seen... And this is still a tendency for me, I see it in our circles, that uh, we can tend to listen to our favorite politicians, we can tend to like Facebook posts that, that condemn the sinners who are out there rather than seeing the sinner in the mirror. And that is a dangerous spot to be in. And we'll see as we go along what a dangerous spot it is to be in uh, for the second son uh, and for those whom he's representing in Jesus' parable. If this is you, if you can see that in yourself, and I think we can all see that in ourselves to some extent, I plead with you, see that those things that you use to, to soothe your religious conscience and to uh, excuse your lack of obedience, they're only, 
making you feel better about being on a way that leads to death. Um, and even those of us who are, by God's grace, saved and, and engaging in those ways of thinking of ourselves as better than others, uh, God's discipline will, uh, will correct us on that. And so I would urge us to, to, to turn from that and not to pursue that way. But that connection, that connection between the second son uh, and the danger that he's headed towards, uh, the Pharisees haven't seen that yet in our text, moving on to verse 31. Um, having painted the picture of these sons and their father, who's coming to ask them to go into the field, uh, Jesus states the question now. He's painted the picture, and now he states the question in verse 31. Which of the two did the will of his father? And without hesitation, the obvious answer, they give it. They said the first. So with that, Jesus' goal is accomplished. Using this parable, he's shifted the debate, and he's accomplished at least three things by doing this. Uh, first, and probably most importantly, he's introduced the figure they had been leaving out. By bringing in uh, the Father's authority, he's introducing basically God, and he's introducing himself. Every kingdom has a king. And so they had left him out. They had pursued kingdom by their own righteousness. They had thought of themselves as being qualified and born into it and needing to maintain and accomplish kingdom entrance requirements on their own. Uh, so they had left the authority. They had left the king out. Secondly, uh, it's a matter of the qualification. Uh, having left the king out, they, they, they lost or they missed the qualification for the kingdom. That submitting to the kingdom is a matter of submitting to or entering the kingdom is a matter of submitting to the kingdom's king. If you're not his subject, you're his enemy. And then thirdly, uh, the parable in Jesus' is telling has hinted at the true nature of obedience. And we'll see this more clearly when we get to verse 32. Uh, but in the words of, of uh, Jesus describing the first son, he regretted it. Uh, this, is, this is representing repentance. He turned away from his own way. And what will become clearer as we go along is that we all start out going our own way, and the kingdom entrance is a matter of turning from that way uh, and going the way of the king. And so the Jewish leaders themselves have concluded our first point. The kingdom citizens, quite simply, are those who obey the king, and all others are enemies of the kingdom. Moving on to verse uh, 31, the second uh, portion there, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom before you, the kingdom of God before you. Now, it's hard to overstate how shocking and offensive and infuriating these words would have been to these Jewish leaders. Um, but in order to sort of help us uh, grasp this, it's good to consider uh, their sort of frame of reference, their framework uh, for what they thought of about kingdom. And I alluded to this already uh, but, but one of the main things to understand are the laws for ritual purity uh, in the Old Testament and how that worked into their mentality. And first, let me describe just real quickly uh, the legitimate purpose of the laws for ritual purity. And that was to display God's holiness, that God is set apart, uh, and that all who approach him officially for worship uh, should be consecrated or clean. Uh, that was the point was God's holiness. Um, if you were to rank occasions for uncleanness in order from most serious to least serious, 
Least serious is actually secondary contamination, like being near someone unclean. I could be unclean. That's at the bottom of the list. And, and if you pay any attention to the Gospels, the, the Jewish leaders had this in reverse. For them, like I said, their mentality was they were born qualified. They were children of Abraham. And a big part of not being disqualified from kingdom was not coming into contact with other people. So they had, and this is in keeping with their whole philosophy, their whole outlook on things, they had made the purity laws more about their own holiness and their own righteousness than about God's holiness and God's righteousness. And again, if they had been paying any attention at all to Jesus' ministry, they would have seen it wasn't that he had no thought for purity or for cleanness or for holiness, but the fact is Jesus was the one promised Jesus' ministry was to come as God to his people, emphasizing that there was a need for the Messiah. And that's what all of those holiness and purity laws were pointing to, is that we needed to be cleansed, and there was only one way for us to be cleansed, and it was the shedding of blood. It was the shedding of the blood of the Son of God. And in his ministry, uh, Jesus demonstrated time and again that he was this one he was this one who would come and make his people uh, permanently clean and acceptable for worship. Uh, what happened as he went about, and they would have been familiar to some degree with this, they certainly were outraged by the fact that he dined with sinners. He dined with those who were considered not worthy, who would have made a person unclean. But rather than making him unclean, he made them clean. This happened in uh, Mark 1 when the leprous man came to be healed. And it says, Mark is careful to say, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. And then one of the more serious uh, situations for contamination, secondary contamination, uh, and this is in some sense secondary, is contact with a, with a dead person. Uh, you'd be unclean. Um, for a time because of contact with a person who was dead. Uh, but when Jesus came into Jairus' home, and uh, Seth preached on this text uh, two weeks ago, uh, Jesus took the, the girl who was dead by the hand, and of course the effects of death were undone. She was not only cleansed, she was raised, raised from the dead. And then, of course, famously also in that text that Seth preached two weeks ago, uh, the woman with the uncleanness, the, the issue of blood, touched him, and rather than contaminating him, he cleansed her. Now, I know we're pretty used to thinking about Jesus this way, that Jesus is a friend of sinners, uh, but I do want us to reflect on this, and, and I say that I first want myself uh, to reflect on this, and I have been. Jesus uh, is a friend of sinners, but how willing are we to get our hands dirty uh, in that way? I think something we see in this text is that those who are able to see their sin, uh, and of course in this text it's easiest for prostitutes and tax collectors uh, in that uh, first century uh, Jewish context, it's easier for them to see their sin and for them to believe that they have need of a Savior, someone to cleanse them, than it was for these Jewish leaders, uh, for these Pharisees, these men of the law who thought of themselves as clean. But uh, and I think I was listening to something from Alexander Strzok this week, week in which he was describing the fact that when we come to saving faith in Christ, usually we don't look very respectable. 
uh, a lot of times we sort of come to the end of ourselves and we're in a tough situation. Um, I can say that was the case for me if I think back on uh, the circumstances in which God saved me. But then as he does his work, uh, we, look, we start to look more and more uh, respectable. Uh, and, and if I just think about people in the poorer areas of town and what my impulse is uh, in terms of spending time around people that might be characterized as tax collectors, prostitutes, sinners, as the Gospels emphasize, as, as Jesus is routinely accused of, sometimes my instinct is more to circle the wagons uh, than it is to reach out uh, and to spend time with those folks and to really think of myself uh, in right terms. And I think that's the answer. If we uh, sense this in ourselves, if we sense that we're quicker to see the sins in others and less quick than we should be to desire that the mercy that was extended to us should be extended to them, I think it's helpful to think about Paul's example. Because, of course, we can't be like Jesus, uh, going around and cleansing people just because our cleanness uh, infects them with uh, cleanliness instead of um, uh, infecting us with their sin. But we can be like Paul, who in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, says, I am the least of the apostles. And just consider this contrast. In our text today, we have uh, the Jewish leaders who uh, really illegitimately point constantly to their own authority. There's nobody who has more legitimate authority from a human perspective than an apostle. And Paul seeks to downplay that. And he seeks to remember his sin. And, and to those of us who struggle you know, on the spectrum, more towards the self-righteousness end, to think back on those circumstances and the indignity of where you were when God saved you and how much of a rebel you were, how much of an enemy of the kingdom you were, it has a humbling effect. If we can, we can sense, like Paul did, the overwhelming grace of the gospel and remember the mercy he's extended to us, then we'll know from our own experience that God is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. And rather than being there in the comfort of our own homes and thinking about the sinners that are out there, we'll desire to, and, and in reality, see that sinner in the mirror and, and, like Paul said, not have the grace of God wasted on us, but get to work and minister this hope, minister this mercy in hopes of seeing God heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. Now, I think this text also uh, gloriously speaks uh, to both ends of the spectrum. You might struggle more with that self-righteousness uh, tendency, but there may be some among us today who struggle more with uh, self-loathing than self-righteousness. Perhaps you see yourself as unclean, as full of shame, maybe as not good enough or too shameful to be acceptable to God or to Jesus. And I would just say to that, this word, if that's you, this word is for you. Be comforted by this. Be comforted by the knowledge that those who are secure in themselves, like the Jewish leaders, those who are secure in their own worthiness and their own cleanness and their own self-acceptance are not those who will enter the kingdom of God. Rather, it's those like you. If you find yourself wanting to stand off to the side, out of sight, and not even lift your eyes to heaven, like the, the tax collector in Luke 18, because you know you are unworthy, oh friend, cast yourself. Cast yourself on the mercy of the king. Jesus came, yes, to his people who were hurting and in need of a savior, and he came to us. 
This word is for us. He will receive you. He will bind you up and he will heal you and you will be fit for his kingdom. There's no shame too great. There's no uncleanness that could come into contact with him and not be utterly, utterly changed. So kingdom citizens are the least likely. In verse 32, we find our final point, and that is that kingdom citizens believe and repent. Matthew writes, and Jesus says, For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So that's a significant chunk. We're going to break it down into four, uh, four sort of uh, individual points. And that's four pieces of evidence uh, that Jesus gives here to drive his point home. This is really where he sort of sums up and gives the evidence for his case. Uh, and the two things he's accomplishing here, um, and this first one really needs explanation, uh, especially because not only did the, uh, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders, think of themselves as most likely to enter the kingdom, and that's, that's a helpful contrast. If the ones who are actually entering are the least likely, then the ones who aren't entering are the most likely. Uh, and not only would they have thought of themselves that way, everyone thought of them that way. Um, you know, the reason the sinners, quote-unquote, cast themselves into sin was they didn't have the same hope uh, that these Jewish leaders had, that they had been born into this privilege and just needed to maintain it by separating themselves. Uh, they, they had other motivations, and certainly they were still rebellious, uh, but they knew they were the least likely for this, uh, what, the, what the Jewish leaders had set up as an eternal hope. Uh, so as we look through the text, we'll see these four pieces of evidence that it is the tax collectors and the prostitutes that are getting into the kingdom. And it's going to be Jesus' explanation of how that's so, that this is actually turned on its head. That expectation that the most likely would enter is wrong, and it's actually the least likely. Uh, and then the other thing that these four pieces of evidence accomplish is that by agreeing to Jesus' definition of obedience, which he led them to do through the parable, uh, that they have unwittingly agreed that they are enemies of the kingdom who will not enter in. So he's leading them, and he'll continue to do this in the text that follows. We don't have time to go into that. He'll lead them to pass their own sentence, their own condemnation. And that's, that's largely Matthew's point, is uh, the, the Israelites, the Jewish leaders in particular, have rejected their king, and they have found themselves uh, in this position of being excluded, excluded from the kingdom. So these four pieces of evidence, we'll see these right in the text there in verse 32. First, John came to you in the way of righteousness. Second piece of evidence, you did not believe him. Thirdly, the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, and you saw it. Uh, and fourthly, even seeing it, you did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him. So evidence number one, John came to you in the way of righteousness. Now, you remember back in verse 25, uh, sort of in our introduction, Jesus had brought up John's ministry uh, in response to their question about his authority, and he had asked them to state the source of John's ministry, whether it was from heaven or from men. And so what Jesus is doing here, you know, I said he wasn't going to answer for them initially. Now he's going to start to answer uh, his own question to them. And Jesus' answer is John was sent by God. Jesus, or John came in the way of righteousness. 
Uh, and, and correctly, Jesus treats this like it's obvious, like it's common sense. Uh, we see there in the text that even the people knew it. The people regarded John as a prophet. Mark uh, points out in his gospel that Herod even knew that John was a righteous and a holy man. But we see evidence number two, you did not believe him. So we have to ask, if this is common sense, uh, if this is obvious pretty much to everyone, then why the resistance? Uh, and in answering that, it's necessary, and this is kind of key to understanding uh, how Jesus pieces this all together and what is so condemning of these men, is to see John the Baptist's ministry, uh, which we'll do by turning to Matthew 3. Go ahead and turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 3. Uh, starting with verse 1. Now in those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, so you see the commonality there with what Jesus is talking about, uh, repentance and kingdom of heaven. Uh, so John is preaching repentance, um, and, and the reason for that uh, we find in verse 3, Jesus is coming. Uh, and this is Matthew's interjection, speaking of John. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Um, and I won't have you turn to Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 3, but this is a direct quote from there. And if you look back there, you'll see when it says, Make the paths of the Lord straight, make his way straight, Lord is in all caps, which means it's the, the covenant name for Yahweh. What John is proclaiming as the voice is that God himself is coming. And so then we see if we look ahead to uh, verse 11, um, John connects it. So we know from Isaiah and from what Matthew is saying about John's ministry that John is proclaiming the coming of God, and then it becomes very explicit, starting in verse 11. John says, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, uh, pointing to um, sort of the natural uh, aspect of John's ministry, that it's, it's in that respect fairly common. Uh, and then the contrast, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I. So this one who is coming, very much in keeping with what Isaiah said, is God himself, mightier than John. He's, in fact, omnipotent. And John continues, I am not fit to remove his sandals, pointing to his holiness. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And the contrast between John and the one who's coming could not be clearer. But then... It becomes even more explicit in Matthew's narrative, uh, verse 13, then Jesus arrived. And so again, if, if these guys, and they were, they were paying close attention to John's ministry because they were threatened by it, so they couldn't mistake what John was saying, and this is why the controversy. They knew John was saying God was coming, and he was saying you'd better get ready. You'd better repent. Now, to drive this home in our thinking, um, I would just point out we've all had this experience to some extent, uh, but in a much lesser way. 
Uh, if you think back, uh, and for some of us, it might be thinking back a long ways, but to when you were kids uh, and you knew you were doing something your parents wouldn't approve of, and all of a sudden they showed up in your room, what was your impulse? It was, it was probably to cut out the behavior, right? And that's, that's kind of what, and John's kind of serving the, pers- the function of an older brother here. It's kind of like if you know you're doing something wrong and your older brother shows up and says, hey, you better cut that out, dad's coming. If you believe your brother and you believe your dad is who he is, you're going to stop and you're going to do things instead that are pleasing to him. And so clearly what John was saying, these guys were rejecting. Instead, they dug in their heels and they opposed the king. And so they demonstrated that they were indeed enemies of the kingdom. Evidence number three, the tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him. And of course, these uh, Jewish leaders, they knew this by their own admission. And Jesus points this out, you seeing this. Now, the, the, the effect of this at evidence, as evidence should be clear If you guys think about people you know who are hardened in rebellion and just profligate sinners, what are the chances they're just going to turn from that and do things that are righteous and holy? I would say not just unlikely, you know, not just the least likely, but actually impossible. And they had seen this happen. This was an avalanche of repentance uh, among what they would have considered the worst sinners. And so they saw this and they hardened their hearts against it. And that's evidence number four. You, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterward so as to believe him, that is to believe John. So we saw in point one that kingdom citizens obey the king, and this really defines that. What is kingdom obedience? Uh, And we saw also the response of the first son was initially rebellious, and this really kind of puts meat on that. We all start out as enemies of the kingdom. And that's a reality, again, that's true from the garden. There is none who does good, not even one. And so it was necessary for everyone when John showed up and said, God is coming, repent. There was no exception. Nobody had the righteousness on their own to bring them into the kingdom. It was necessary for each one to turn from his or her own way and to follow the way of the king. So, Jesus shows us how it is the least likely who lead the way into the kingdom. Kingdom citizens obey the king. Others may offer lip service, but kingdom citizens obey. Kingdom citizens are the least likely Others may look good on the outside. They may have a good initial response, it might seem like, but they do not believe that they need the king. And then finally, kingdom citizens believe and repent. While those others are satisfied with their own way, kingdom citizens realize their rebellion. They turn away from it and they follow the king. And so the question must turn to you. With these two groups, really the only difference between them was how they responded to the king. And so how do you respond to the Messiah? Have you believed this word? The word not just of an older brother, but of John the Baptist, of Matthew, of Jesus, of God himself. 
that Jesus is God come in the flesh, that he is king, that he has visited and died for his people and has risen again to reign forever, and that to enter his kingdom, you must believe in him and repent. I urge you, beloved, do not hold on to whatever this world is offering you, whether that's the promise of sin or it's the promise of your own way of qualifying for the kingdom. None of those things will lead to life. They've all been the way to death ever since that first temptation, ever since that first sin in the garden. We in our hearts on our own have gone away from our king. We've gone away from the perfect provision that God had made. Perhaps there is no clearer or more appealing invitation to God's kingdom than this from Isaiah. Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why do you spend money that is for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in abundance. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Please bow your heads with me. Oh, Father, we rejoice in the glory of the King. We rejoice in the glory of your provision. We rejoice even the fact that you've put it in our hearts to know and to have this longing for something that would not be what our experience is, that life in this sin-cursed world is broken, that it's not what it was meant to be. And Father, we thank you also for this specific revelation that you have not left us on our own in our need. You have told us that we're dependent. You've told us that we must come to you, that we must turn from our sin and believe you. And you've given us this precious word to believe. I pray, Father, that you would tear down strongholds in our hearts. Lord, whether it's the lie that uh, we have in ourselves, something that could recommend to you, Lord, something that could qualify us in terms of our own righteousness. I pray, Lord, that you would show us the futility of that. Father, where we have in our minds that we are too uh, worthless and sinful and wretched for your grace and your mercy, I pray, Lord, that you would show us the tenderness and compassion of our Savior that he came to and he put his hands on and he made clean those who were considered even the worst sinners, those least likely to enter the kingdom. I pray, Father, that we would be counted among their ranks, that we would see ourselves like Paul as the chief of sinners, uh, Lord, and that we would have mercy, and that we would receive that mercy ourselves, and that we would go in the hope of that mercy, bending our knee to our King and giving you all the praise. We ask in your Son's name. Amen.